Hi, welcome back. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theatre. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Not exactly thieves, but beginning in 81, we called ourselves Thieves Theatre, but we didn't just do theatre. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we called paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. <laughs> Which means we just <laughs> like putting sticks in ant hills and watching the ants scurry and adjust to their new reality, their new status quo. Exactly. So as promised, in this episode, we'll talk about Native American reaction to the teepee. Or, well, of particular significance to us was the time that we got a visit from two members of the American Indian Movement, or AIM, which was about six weeks after we erected the teepee. We'll tell a little bit about their interesting history. Then and now we feel a great affinity to AIM, especially their methods for getting attention for their cause, the reasons which probably are obvious from our, if you've seen our history. Right, right. So broadly speaking, Native American reaction to us was split. Uh, There were those who told us that we had no right to erect a teepee, and then others who claimed they wanted to adopt us into their tribe. And it's obvious, like any other community, the Native American community is not a monolith. Um, even AIM had its divisions, and in 93 split into two, two distinct factions. In a later episode, we'll talk about another split in Native Americans over a decades-long project, also created by a non-Native artist, right. the Crazy Horse uh, Monument. It's a gigantic memorial sculpture that dwarfs the nearby Mount Rushmore Yeah, it's incredibly huge. I mean, you know, Mount Rushmore is big, right? Crazy Horse Monument is 10 times bigger. (laughs) (laughs) More than 10, I think. I think so. (laughs) When we took our road trip to the Pine Ridge Reservation in the Black Hills in December of 91, we discovered there was a division within the Lakota tribe about that project. Even within Lakota families in one instance, right? So... In the weeks before our commemoration ceremony, we were trying to involve the Native American community. Well, there was no internet back then, so where to begin, right? We started by going to the National Museum of the American Indian here in New York, and then they sent us to the American Indian Community House. The American Indian Community House was founded in 1969 by Native American volunteers as a community-based organization mandated to improve the status of Native Americans and to foster intercultural understanding. Right. So it seemed like an ideal place for us to go. Yeah, we thought, oh, good. (laughs) This is what we were hoping for. Um, I went there and ended up speaking to a man called John Cutnose, who, as I recall, uh, he was installing an exhibit of his artwork. He was he was an artist, and he was in their gallery when I was talking to him. And recently, we thought we would try to contact him now, like right. 33 years later. And so we Googled him, but he just passed away this last year in 2022 at the age of 75. But he was a really interesting guy. Yeah, his obituary uh, says that his mother was a Lakota and his father was Cheyenne and Arapaho. He had studied uh, graphic arts and advertising and eventually fine arts at the School of Visual Arts right here in New York. Right. He later became an educator for the Pequot Nation in Connecticut and dedicated himself to educating and promoting 
understanding of both the differences and similarities between all people. Right, so basically continuing the American Indian Community House mission right, personally, exactly. right? Yeah. Um, so he was reticent, but he did show sort of tentative support for what we were doing. But then after the teepee was already up, you and Ace went to see him again, but he didn't really have any time for you, or probably more accurately, he didn't know what to do with you. Right, probably. <laughs> As I recall, he was a pretty sort of um, introverted, gentle man. Right. right. Yeah, Ace was a lighter-skinned uh, black man. Sometimes other uh, blacks referred to him as high yellow. Yeah, he didn't like that. No, he hated that. <laughs> the term refers to uh, light-skinned black people, and the high part implies a higher status than darker-skinned people. What Ace said he was, was part Cherokee. Right. So, you know, on that subject, something interesting that we discovered was the complex sort of intertwined history between Cherokee nations and African Americans. I had no idea about mm. this. So slavery was part of Cherokee society even before European colonization. They often enslaved enemy captives uh, during the war that they had with other tribes. Yeah, but the, the Cherokee had a different concept of slavery. Their captive slaves were just warriors who had been defeated, and they were only, only temporary slaves. Mm. One day they'd be released or even adopted into the tribe. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, slavery. Yeah, right. but prior to the Civil War, a lot of wealthy Cherokees also mm. bought and owned black slaves. So in 1835, uh, the official numbers were 1,592 slaves with more than 7% of Cherokee families owning slaves. So this was actually a higher percentage than generally across the South, where only 5% of families owned slaves. Right. And uh, Cherokee slave owners uh, took their slaves with them on that Trail of Tears. Um, that was the forced removal of the U.S. government that happened between 1830 and 1850. Forced removal by the U.S. government. Right. Of Indians. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Native Americans were moved from their original homelands in the southeast to newly designated Indian territory in what was then, well, what, what is now Oklahoma. Right. By 1861, just prior to the Civil War, the Cherokee held about 4,000 black slaves. 4,000 black slaves. Um, and by the way, it's weird to me that I, I always thought 5%, it was more than 5% of the South, so, you know, 5% of Southern families owning right. slaves. That's sort of a... Seems like a low number, doesn't it? You yeah. just, I don't know, you conjure right. up something higher. So... After the Civil War, the formerly enslaved became known as Cherokee freemen. And they were allowed the choice then to either live as citizens within the tribes or to have U.S. citizenship, you know, in United States territory outside the tribal nations. Yeah. Anyway, Ace claimed he was part Cherokee, which I took it to mean by blood, not Cherokee freedmen. What part of that claim was his family's personal oral history, fact, or myth? I don't know. 
I took it in a, as an explanation for his skin tone that suggested he was of mixed race. Right. right. You know, it just reminds me a little bit of Elizabeth Warren, you know, uh, <laughs> Pocahontas. Right, exactly. As Trump. Yeah, I mean, the same thing. She grew up thinking she was Indian, and then I don't know if she took the DNA exactly. test. Exactly. You know, I think it was her family mythology. Right, right. right. But we weren't sure about Ace. Well, in any case, it was one reason I took Ace with me to come meet John Cutnose. Um, but I, it didn't really seem to register, that is, open a door with him in any way. You know, Cutnose may have classified Ace in his mind as a pretendian. Pretendian. Yeah, yeah. that's a, you know, pretend Indian. Pretending is a, a pejorative. And we'll talk about this a little bit with uh, Marlon Brando, Sachin Littlefair, feather incident at the 1973 Oscar uh, ceremony. Yeah, yeah. But um, but then John Cutnose did have somebody called Steve King call us after your meeting uh, right. with him. And uh, supposedly he was going to give us information about centenary activities uh, that were planned in the city. But when I talked to King, I quickly, quickly realized that he was not an ally. Uh, when I told him what we were doing, he immediately assumed that wild parties were taking place in the teepee, and he didn't see any value in any of it unless Indians were represented. Of course, you know, I told him, well, that's exactly what we're hoping to achieve here, Native mm. American participation, but he, he wasn't having it. Instead, he threatened to bring 100 Indians to tear the teepee down, so I called John Cutnose back, shaken, and basically thanked him for nothing. Uh, yeah, and instead we just held our own ceremony. If no one else attended, we were sure that the dead warriors that we were trying to honor right. would see it and accept it. And despite what Steve King feared, the Hills res residents had deep respect and reverence for what they now saw as something like their, their church almost. Exactly, exactly, which was such a great addition for everybody, you know, to have something like a church that everybody took communal care of, you know? Yeah. And I wanted to explain that to him, but he wasn't having it, like I said. So... A couple weeks after the dedication ceremony, a man and a woman appeared at the teepee identifying themselves to you as members of AIM, American Indian Movement. So we were familiar with the group's protests and their actions, so uh, we knew them as the most prominent militant American Indian Association, but not much more than that about their history. When we learned more, we felt even more admiration for the group and even more aligned with their right. work. Yeah, AIM was founded in uh, Minneapolis in 1968 as a grassroots movement and was initially centered in urban areas to address systemic issues like poverty, discrimination, police brutality against Native Americans. But then it widened its focus from urban issues to general tribal issues like mm -hmm. treaty rights, high unemployment rates, education, and the preservation of uh, indigenous cultures yeah. worldwide. Right, exactly. And, you know, interestingly, AIM was organized by Native American men who were serving time together in prison. Their incarceration, of course, alienated them from their tribe, and others 
left their reservation after the Indian Relocation Act of 1956, which was supposed to foster economic opportunity by encouraging Native people to move off their reservations and into the cities to assimilate. Right, but the criticism was that it was really part of the Indian termination policy. Of course. <laughs> which was meant to mostly weaken community and tribal ties. Uh, the government paid Indians to move to the cities, hoping to eventually cut subsidies to reservations and integrate, what, the many unique Native cultures into a larger culture? Right. The quote-unquote American culture? American culture? <laughs> yeah. Right. So as a result, nearly 70%, a lot, right? Seven, 70% of American Indians left their communal homelands um, and relocated to cities in hopes of finding a livelihood, right? Making a living. But many of them struggled, including with the culture shock in these radically different settings. So they began to organize. And the American Indian movement came out of that uh, urban context. Right. And like other civil rights and anti-war activists at the time, AIM used media to present its message directly to the American public. It created events to attract press rather than relying on traditional lobbying efforts. Right. It's, its leaders looked for opportunities to gain publicity. And they did. They were very good at it. So, you know, the first big event AIM did that got them national attention was in November of 69. They participated in a 19-month occupation of the abandoned federal penitentiary on Alcatraz Island, which was organized by seven different Indian movements. They argued that because Alcatraz Island was abandoned, it qualified for reclamation by the indigenous people under the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie between the U.S. government and the Lakota tribe. The treaty stated that all retired, abandoned, and out-of-use federal land was to be returned to the indigenous people who once occupied it. So, Such as Alcatraz. Such as Alcatraz. Right. So made perfect sense to them. Uh, treaties, however, right? <laughs> So celebrities like Jane Fonda and Anthony Quinn and Marlon Brando and others visited the island to show their support. So they got lots of media attention. Right. But best known and probably their most defining event was when AIM held an armed occupation of Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Reservation in uh, February in 1973. Yeah, it's often called the second Wounded Knee. Yeah, they were protesting what they saw as the corrupt local government along with federal issues that were affecting reservation communities. Indians from many communities, primarily urban Indians, joined the occupation. The FBI sent in agents and U.S. Marshals in an attempt to cordon off the site. Right. So that siege lasted 71 days. Twelve people were wounded, including an FBI agent who was left paralyzed. Uh, at least two people, a Cherokee and a Lakota activist, were shot to death. And afterwards, 1,200 American Indians were arrested. Uh, wounded Knee drew international attention to the plight of um, American Indians. AIM leaders were 
tried in a Minnesota federal court. The court dismissed their case on the basis of government prosecutorial conduct, right? <laughs> prosecutorial conduct, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so while misconduct. Yeah. Prosecutorial misconduct. That exactly. is a mouthful. <laughs> right. Right. So while this wounded knee occupation was going on, uh, that was in February, and in March of 73, the Academy Awards took place. Marlon Brando, a supporter of AIM, had been nominated for his performance in The Godfather, and he won. And he didn't attend, and instead he asked Sachin Littlefeather to speak on his behalf. Well, Littlefeather arrived in full Apache regalia and read Brando's statement that said he wouldn't accept the award because of the poor treatment of Native Americans in the film industry. Littlefeather died just this past year, uh, not long after the Academy formally apologized to her for the way that she was treated. She was harassed uh, and booed, also cheered, but booed. And people like John Wayne had to be physically restrained from attacking her. Uh, it was a circus. But most disturbingly, as an actor, she was blacklisted and her career was over, which is what the, the Academy apologized for right. formally, right? Interestingly, um Sakine Littlefeather's real name, the name on her birth certificate. Yes, this really complicates things on this story. Was uh, Marie Louise Cruz. And after she died last year, her estranged sisters claimed they weren't Native American at all, but that their father was of Mexican heritage. Uh, some news outlets mentioned this when they reported her death. Some didn't. It was investigated, and the evidence does seem to point to it, that being true. Yeah, it Unfortunately, it does yeah. from, from all accounts. You know, I read up on this quite a bit, and unfortunately, I think it's true. Um, we talked earlier about John Cutnos maybe thinking that Ace was a pretendian. Well, a pretendian is a person who falsely claims either to be a citizen of a Native American tribe or to be descended from one. And being a pretendian is considered an extreme form of cultural appropriation, obviously, especially if, like Sachin Littlefeather, you assert that you can represent or speak for a community that you do not belong to. Mm -hmm. So... There was a rise in pretendians in the 70s, and one reason was that the me because of the media coverage of occupation of Alcatraz and the Wounded Knee occupation. Yeah, Sachin Littlefeller claimed that she had participated part-time in the occupation of Alcatraz, and it was around that time she adopted her name. Um, in an interview after Academy Awards appearance, someone confirmed that Littlefeller Feather had supported the protests at Alcatraz, but according to an article that was published just after her death, another activist who was at Alcatraz said Little Feather wasn't there. Yeah. So, you know, Sakin Littlefeather or Maria Louise Cruz, appreciation of Native culture, may be an example of crossing the line into appropriation. Appropriation. Right. From, yeah. So... 
And when we talked to John Cottonose before we erected the teepee, and then when you and Cherokee Ace <laughs> uh, met with him prior to the dedication, as much as we were sure that our intentions were pure, we were at least on some level yeah. seeking a seal of approval, right, from the Native American authority, some authority. And of course, John Cutnose didn't want to be that authority. Thinking about it now, how could he be? How could anyone want to take on that role of yeah. officially sanctioning, right? Yeah, or any real, or any, even a group of natives. <laughs> Who wants to say, I'm speaking for... Yeah. All right. Uh, so when the two members of AIM showed up at the teepee, for me, it was as if now <laughs> the authorities had arrived, right? Um, the authority. Especially AIM, right? right the right. authority. You're right. And still fresh in my mind was uh, John King's disturbing call to you, right? Yeah. So when they said they were from the American Indian Movement and asked if they could see the inside of the teepee, uh, I invited them inside, but I was full of apprehension. I, I offered them seats on our bedding. Uh, instead, they sat down right next to the fire pit in the dirt. And so I, I did the same, and that's where we were talking. Um, they both were looking intently around at the uh, drawings you had put up, all the... The mailbags, yeah. Right. See, at that, at that point, I had mostly my depiction of the minor arcana up, but I already had done a few portraits that were going to be the court cards, portraits of the residents on the hill. Right. And uh, so the first thing the man said to me uh, was that when he came into the yard, he asked for the owner of the teepee, if, if I was here, and someone said, yeah, chief is inside. I... So um, <laughs> I, knew, I knew immediately what he was getting at, um, what, it, you know, what he was asking me. He was checking to see if I was native or a pretendian, right? right? Thank you, Sammy. Yeah, a pretendian. <laughs> of course, a real Indian wouldn't go by the name of chief unless they were a real chief. Chief. Right, exactly. <laughs> So I, I told him, yeah, Chief, that's kind of a joke name that stuck, a nickname that some here call me because I guess I live in a teepee, yeah. right? Uh, sort of mocking me. Of course, <laughs> mocking <right>? you. <laughs> For the same reason, other out outsiders uh, coming to visit assume my wife and I are Native American, uh, until we correct them. We're not Native, but we do try to, st I told him we do try to stay anonymous, unknowable, to outsiders as much as possible, especially the press. Exactly. And and then I told him I go by the name of Nick Manhattan, <laughs> Sammy again, right? Sammy again. Right. Yeah, that, you know, when the New York Post came, we had mentioned that previously, uh, they captioned their photo of you as, he'll take Manhattan. And then Sammy started calling you Nick Manhattan. Right, exactly. <laughs> And, you know, I, I adopted it then as my pseudonym, yeah. right, the, whenever outsiders came up. And um, after I said, you know, I'm Nick Manhattan, he gave me their names. I can't remember them anymore, but I remember them being or sounding like Indian names. Um, then he asked me if I had be built a teepee. And, you know, I told him that it was mostly you <laughs> who had built it and how you had sewed together it out of open mailbags. Yes, right? me, the German. <laughs> he said it looked authentic, but wondered how you knew how to build it, right? Yeah. I told him she used a book, 
Amazingly, he knew the book. Yeah, I think it was the go-to book, the the Laubens book. Yeah, the, the Laubens weren't Native American. No. Right. No. So I think a lot of Native Americans had to still learn how to build a teepee. Sure, it's not, yeah. I because mean, it was, well, we don't know, yeah. right. Um, and he told me that his friends upstate, uh, where he was staying, had built a teepee using that. Also using that book. As a guide, yeah. right. The woman who hadn't said anything up to then asked about the designs on the canvas that you had drawn on the canvas, mm -hmm. saying that they were not Lakota and asking what they were. I told them that they were your interpretation of the tarot deck, you know. Yeah. And she asked if that was some kind of witchcraft. Um, I must have had to explain to them what the tarot meant to us or what the tarot is and uh, how you had made the... The teepee out of 78 U.S. Yes, mail bags. Yes, the size of a tarot deck and how excited we were about that, right? right that right. it ended up being 78 and it, it felt meant to be to us. And now it probably meant nothing to them, you no. explaining that. Right. Yeah. Hey, did you tell them by chance? I never asked you this, but about, you know, the, that the government uh, had issued Native Americans back then canvas uh, when they no longer could use buffalo hides to build their teepee, and that those mail bags were meant to represent that government-issued canvas. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I don't think I it's told them It's such a that. cool story, right, whatever. Right, right, So anyway, we were seated on the ground this whole time talking, but then suddenly the man stood up real quick, you know? And I stood up with him, you know, I was nervous, right? And I had suspected from the start that this was not just a hello kind of visit for Maine, but more on the order of an investigation. Even like a, an interrogation. Right, <laughs> of the teepee and its owners, right? Yeah. Um, and he asked me, do you know anything about the American Indian movement? Mm -hmm. Well, I told him what I knew, how I had read about the occupations of Alcatraz, Wounded Knee, and Black Hills. I also told him that I thought that they were righteous acts and, you know, standing up for past and present crimes against the Indians, right? Mm-hmm. And how we had built the teepee and erected it here on the hill in solidarity with that. Uh, and how we had dedicated it on December 29th, the centenary of Wounded Knee Massacre, as a memorial. Right. But then he asked me why here. The, you know, the people living here are drug addicts, alcoholics, you know. And I told him, yes, for the most part, but they still deserve civil rights and some basic dignity they all deserve to be respected for their struggles and for who they are as humans. Yeah, human rights. Right. And they all have complete respect for the teepee, how it had become almost a church to them. And, of course, never any drugs or alcohol or anything was allowed inside the teepee. In fact, uh, no one enters it unless Gabrielle and I are here. And that's enforced by everyone who living up here. Yeah. And how everyone participated in the, you know, the ceremony, the uh, Proudly dedication. Proudly participated. Yeah. Solemnly participated. Yeah. And, but he asked if there were any natives at, this, um, at the dedication. I told him I wasn't sure, but there were a few people who I didn't know and, you know, never introduced themselves to me. Yeah. And then I told him about John Cutnose and Steve King, right? And how Steve King had assumed that we were having the wild parties and drugs and every alcohol and everything in the teepee. 
and how he'd never bothered to listen, you know, or get to know us. And uh, he had said, I think, that there was no value in it in the commemoration unless natives were involved. And how he he threatened to come with 100 Indians to tear it down if it was being disrespected, right? Well, then the man said, right, (laughs) you should know if this teepee were being disrespected, AIM would bring 100 Indians to tear it down. Yeah, and he put the... You know, he put it like almost as a challenge, even an unveiled threat. Yeah, yeah. So at this point, Nick's thinking, huh, maybe this is Steve King, right? Himself, right. You're telling me that, yeah. So I decided whatever I was going to say next would be, you know, my final words. Um, I walked over to the edge of the teepee and reached into my canvas mailbag and uh, pulled out a white T-shirt that had been meticulously detailed with painted symbols. Which is why we didn't know whether Native Americans were present during the dedication ceremony, because this T-shirt showed up. Right. It was left inside for us. Right, and I I handed it to the woman who was still seated on the ground and um, told them that the T-shirt had been placed in the teepee uh, the morning, sometime during the night when we were asleep, and we found it the morning after the ceremony. Yeah. And then I told him about the dedication and how I had read the words of the commemoration off a piece of paper I held up and how the last words were one that I had memorized. Right. So the, the official dedication was, this teepee was erected in remembrance of the lives lost in 1890 and in recognition of the sovereignty and dignity of all disenfranchised individuals today. Uh, you know, I told him I didn't know how much meaning those words had to those who were gathered, but how I had spoken afterwards to everyone, individually and, you know, in small groups, how I made it personal, looking each of them in their eye and telling them if anyone, just one person, does anything to disrespect this teepee, I'll burn it down. And I'm not playing, I'll burn it down. If one person disrespects it, it's going up in flames. Gabriel and I are asking each of you to watch over it. It's your memorial. Respect and protect it. Right. And um, then I remember turning directly to the man and saying something like, look, this is my home. But if this home, this memorial to Wounded Knee is disrespected in, in any way by those living up here, I'll be the one burning it down. You right. would have to. Yeah. yeah. Right after that, after I said that, the woman stood up real quickly when I said that <laughs> and walked over to the man's side and then pulled him to the side a little bit and they talked, right? Uh, so I couldn't hear him, right? She had handed me back the shirt. Right. Well, now, no, the he, shirt, you got to describe the shirt so that well, it makes sense. You know? No, well, she handed him the shirt and pointed to one of the painted images on it. Yeah, it was painted. It was hand-painted with uh, beautiful, multicolored Native American symbols. It was handmade. It was beautiful. Right. So they said a few words to each other I couldn't hear, but mostly both were just looking at the shirt. Uh, So the woman walked over and handed it back to me and said, I see besides us, it seems... At least one other person supports mm-hmm. you. 
I would like to come meet your wife to talk to her about the teepee, especially the symbols on the inner lining. Oh, I so know. you were thinking she saw something in one of the symbols on the shirt right. or something well, that she made said, her think that? Yeah, that? she said what was important about it that was that she said someone else besides us. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So I yeah. was, uh, you know, I sort of took that as, uh, yeah. you know. And um, and th- and then the uh, the man said, yes, I would too. These These portraits are beautiful right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know exactly remember how the goodbyes went, but both were acting like we were friends now, uh, almost like we were part of the same movement, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what I felt anyway. It's and, what we wanted to feel right, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So they thanked me for sharing the teepee and my story with them and how they would talk with their friends upstate about us and how maybe we could visit them and their teepee up there. Uh, maybe even be able to invite us to, um, they had a sweat lodge ceremonies up yes. there. Yes, right. uh, I waited and waited for right. that. We were okay. so hopeful, and they never came back. Right. But I, I walked outside with them. I still had the shirt in my hand, and from then on, I called it my, my ghost shirt, even though it was just two members of the American Indian movement who had approved the teepee and the memorial. Yeah. I felt as if the ghost dance warriors and the others who had died at Wounded Knee had accepted the memorial. Oh, yeah. Signs, right? Mm-hmm. Everywhere, signs <laughs> you cling to, right. especially you. <laughs> right. Um, so in the coming episode, we'll talk about the new configuration of residents on the Hill now uh, that drug sales were going on and the violence and the threats of violence and how we fit into that configuration. Well, we're going to sign off now, but before, before that, we want to encourage you to engage with us on this or any topic. Please. Yeah, you can write us at podcast at thiefstheater.org. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. So thanks again for listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to like, subscribe, and to click that bell so you know when our next episode is out. And check out our website at thievestheater.org and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I on the Hill. Thanks again, everybody.